the best part of that little interaction that Matt just had is in between services, we just had this interaction where he said, you know, the announcements were okay the first time, but it was, it's kind of silly and I didn't want it to be silly and I'm kind of a perfectionist. And so then to see it kind of go off the rails there, uh, Lauren and I were mouthing perfectionist. <laughs> Not, no, it's so good. Uh, good morning, friends. How are you today? We're going to, if it's all right, just get right to it this morning. We're going to jump right in. So grab your Bibles. If you brought one, pull it out. If you need to use one in the pew rack, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verse 22. If you are using one of those pew rack Bibles, we are on page 847. Emphasis added in response to last week. As you... Uh, As you turn this morning, let me remind you that we are in the middle of this section of Luke that we are calling The Journey, and this is not just a random title. As we are going to see today in our passage, this journey that Jesus is on, it actually has some enormous significance for what following him means and should look like for me and you today. Um, Luke begins our passage today by actually saying that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards this beautiful, wonderful, difficult, painful, glorious, victorious task that lies before him. You see, Jerusalem and what will happen there is the focus of Jesus' ministry. This is something that Luke brings up throughout his gospel time and time again. Actually, nine times in the gospel of Luke, he mentions that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. This is number four of nine. And what he's pointing out to us, ever so intentionally, is that Jesus is not just sort of wandering aimlessly about, kind of wherever the wind blows, just teaching sermons to anyone who will listen, But instead, he is steadfastly and purposely moving towards sacrifice and suffering that will result in salvation for the entire world. So that's the backdrop. That's sort of the the, the tenor of our text today. Let's dive in. Luke chapter 13. We will start in verse 22. Follow along with me. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. This is one of those passages that the more I got into it this week, the more I was reminded of just how wonderful Jesus is. 
just how uh, much I love him and how worthy he is of our devotion and um, of our lives. And so let's dive in to this passage and find out what God has for us this morning. This, this whole text, this whole section, this whole um, passage in Luke that we're looking at is actually driven by this opening question that's offered to Jesus. And it's posed this way. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And we have to understand that this was a question that was the subject of much debate in Jesus' day. It was talked about by rabbis all over Israel in the first century. And there were basically two positions, two camps that the rabbis fell into. Camp A, that all of Israel would have a share in the world to come, that all of Israel would be saved. And then Camp B, that only a select few, only a remnant from Israel, would receive the inheritance of this eternal blessing from God. And so there was sort of an all camp, and there was a small camp. And so probably, based on hearing some of Jesus' previous teaching, this person asked, Jesus... After listening for you for a while, based on some things I've heard you say, it sure seems like you are more of a Camp B guy, a a small camp guy. Is this true? What camp are you in? And I'll argue today that Jesus' answer is neither. That Jesus actually reframes the question altogether and creates an entirely new paradigm for salvation that focuses not on Israel but on himself. You see, the key of salvation for Jesus is not how much in the inner circle of Israel do you have to be. It's not how connected are you to Israel. Instead, it's how connected are you to me. One scholar I read this week brilliantly said it this way. The effects of Jesus' remarks altered the theological nature of the original question to a practical level. The question, will the saved be few, has become, will the saved be you? See how Jesus spins that around. How he reframes it and wants to ask a different question. Will the saved be few? Ah, but will the saved be you? Are you, in fact, on the road of salvation? When it comes to your salvation, what are you relying on? You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, many of the Jews, had pinned their hopes, their eternal salvific hopes, to their spiritual heritage. The fact that they were connected to and associated with God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And what Luke understands as he writes this gospel is that the church must be careful to not fall into the same trap that they fell into. Because friends, just like the Jews of the first century, we too can easily begin to believe that we are part of God's people, part of salvation, for all the wrong reasons. We can be sucked into relying on all the wrong stuff. You see, Jesus speaks to them and he says, your culture has tricked you, has fooled you, has deceived you into relying on something that's not trustworthy, that's not dependable. And so the question for us is, what does our culture today, what does our religious culture suck us into believing and relying on that is not dependable for us either? You see, we can be sucked into all the wrong stuff. The fact that we are good people. It's maybe the number one lie of our day. 
if you're a good person, if you're just, if you have more good on the side of the scales than bad, which by the way, none of you do, but if you think that you do, then you can say, I'm a good person and I will be saved. If you can find people who are worse than you, even if you have to read the newspaper or watch the news, I'm a good person. We can be sucked into relying on the fact that we give and go to church. That we put something in the offering bag when it goes past. We can be sucked into the fact that we have the right theology and believe the right stuff. And that is the basis for our salvation. Maybe the most popular one in this room, in fact. The fact that we were baptized can become this sort of anchor, this place, that this thing we rely on to say, that's how I know that I'm saved. The fact that when you were in the fourth grade, you raised your hand and made an emotional decision to accept Jesus. You can be sucked into thinking that is a reliable basis for your salvation. And friends, hear me on this. Hear me very clearly. These are all good things. But they are not the central thing. At least not according to Jesus. Jesus says... Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. He says, there are people who think they are in, who firmly believe, I am in, I have salvation, I am connected with God, connected to Christ. But in fact, they come to discover in this passage, they are not. Devastating, tragic news. Part of this, part of the lie that I think our culture feeds us, stems from the fact that we, in 21st century American evangelicalism, often make salvation, we talk about salvation, Jesus is talking about salvation today, when we talk about it, we make it a a salvation moment thing, a, a one moment in time thing. You see, salvation becomes this thing that I got in the past. Or, or it's the reward that I'm going to receive at some point in the future. And just to be clear, the Bible speaks about salvation in both of these ways. The Bible speaks time and time again about salvation as something we received in the past. It also speaks about salvation as something we will receive in the future. But, but for Jesus, salvation is never separated from our current reality. Our past salvation, our future salvation is never separated from the lives that we are currently living in the moment. This is why Paul, when he writes to the New Testament church, says things like this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, who are currently in the process of salvation, who are living in salvation right in this moment, it is the power of God. Or when he writes to the church at Philippi, he says, continue to work out your salvation. Very present tense, right? With fear and trembling. It's something that you live into in this very moment. Salvation, friends, according to the New Testament, is a life in the kingdom that has a beginning and a destination, a past and a future A moment in the past, a moment ahead in time, but those moments are not disconnected from the road, from the journey that you are on today. Jesus never separates them. So, 
Is that moment, here's a question for you, in that, is that moment when you stood up or raised your hand or came forward to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, is that an important moment? Yeah, it is. If it was truly the beginning of a journey following Jesus. In isolation... If it leads to nothing, it means nothing. But if that moment is connected to a new journey of following Jesus and relying on Him and trusting Him as Lord and Savior, if that's the beginning moment, then yes, it has tremendous significance, but only when connected with the life you live from it. Have you fallen into the trap of believing that your salvation is something that happened or will happen, or or is it something you are living today? Is your salvation something that you are living today? You see, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'm the door, the only door that leads to salvation. You can only find, experience, receive, live in salvation through me. But notice what he says about this door. Notice what he says about himself, essentially. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. You see, Jesus says this is not an easy door to get through. We have to to squeeze through this door. There's some energy, there's some effort required to squeeze through. Some of you have experienced this. You've tried to squeeze into a small place. Some of you had to squeeze into your pants this morning because of all that you've eaten this past week. We have to squeeze through this narrow door, it requires work. You know, the image that, I, just, I fought this all week, but the image that kept coming to mind over and over and over again as I read and studied this passage is this one. <laughs> this, is, this is theology according to Winnie the Pooh, right? And in this scene, if you don't know, um, shame on you, but if you don't know, um, Winnie is stuck, he is trying to get out of Rabbit's house, and he can't. And the question is, why not? Why can't he get out? He got in, how come he can't get out? Who knows the reason? Honey! Honey is the reason. He goes in to receive the honey, the free, delicious nectar of honey. See, this is why this, 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 this image actually ends up working better than I originally thought. The honey's free, right? He receives it with joy and gratitude. But, but, this amazing gift of honey puts Pooh on the path of struggle. Puts Pooh on an ensuing path of difficulty. Because of the the wonderful gift of the honey, there are struggles ahead for Pooh. And Rabbit ain't happy about it. You know what's funny, or maybe a better word is tragic. You know what's tragic? So often in our 21st century evangelical version of Christianity, we try so very hard to make being and becoming a Christian easy. We do everything we can to make it easy for people to say, I am a Christian. And certainly there are passages in the Bible that ask us to remove barriers for people to come to Christ. But as for making the Christian life or explaining what it means to be a Christian in terms that say it's easy, 
I have to beg to differ. Jesus doesn't do this. The Gospels don't do this. Time and time again in the New Testament, we end up reading things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Easy life, hard life. Simple life, sacrificial life. This is why Paul, again, writing to the early church, the church of Philippi says, I want to know Christ. And now he's going to talk about what does it mean to know Christ? What does it look like to know Christ? To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that what? We can become like him in his resurrection. You see, suffering, according to Paul, is the road that we walk with Christ, and it leads to life. And now, if we go back to our passage, let's go back there. The words Jesus uses here in this verse, make every effort. He says, make every effort. He's talking about salvation. And those words, make every effort, are actually one Greek word. Agonizomai. Agonizomai. Make every effort. You have one guess here. Take one guess. What English word do you think we get from this one Greek word, agonizomai? Agony. Very good. You were very confident about that. You see, this is a word that Jesus uses to describe life with him, salvation with him. And this is a word that communicates straining and striving and pushing yourself forward even when things are really tough. It was a a word that was used in the first century to describe the painful effort called for in battle. To describe soldiers fighting on the front lines. It was a word used to describe the struggle and strain required when one would go into competition in an athletic contest. Have any of you ever run the mile on a track? Right? Like you've just gone out to run the mile and you've not just like run it through the forest, you've run it on a track. How many laps is a mile on a track? I told you, I was early, early cue. You can count fingers. Good job. I gave it away. Um, yeah, it's four. <laughs> it's four. We're going to go with four. It was four lap. It's four laps. And I'll never forget this moment. It was my senior year in college. And the way it worked for basketball training was the very first day we would show up on campus at the beginning of the year, we started preseason conditioning. We had another word for that. It was called hell. We would run and run and run some more. And the very first day we would run the mile. And then the very last day of preseason conditioning, right before the season starts, we'd run the mile again. It was sort of this like this benchmark. We would kind of measure the level of conditioning that we were able to achieve. And my senior year, that very last mile, the mile right before the season started, I was in great shape. I was in the best shape of my life. I had been swimming and running and lifting. And the day before we ran the mile, I had decided, to, I decided you know what? I'm going to try to do tomorrow. I'm going to try to do something I've never done before. I'm going to try and break five minutes in the mile, get under five minutes, which I, if you're a runner, you're trying to get under four minutes. But when you're a tall, lanky, size 15 shoe wearing basketball player, five's pretty good. So I get ready. I get all psyched up. I tell the coaches, I'm going to try to break the five. And here we go. Boom. They hit the, they, you know, they say go, off we run. And I am hauling. I am flying. Lap one, lap two, lap three. And the coaches are reading me my splits every single time I go, you know, past, telling me my times. And as I finish lap number three, heading into the fourth and final lap, 
I can tell this is going to have to be a very fast lap if I'm going to break five minutes. And so I am going for it. I am hauling. I'm giving it everything I have. And as I round the final curve and head into the home stretch, it's one of those moments where my legs are just numb. My lungs are on fire. I am literally willing myself, straining with everything I have to move forward. And finally, I hit the finish line and just sort of dive across and go tumbling on the ground just as the coach reads my time allowed to me. 503. (laughs) Never broke five minutes on the mile. But the point is this. Agonizomai, the word that Jesus uses here, is what's required on that final lap. That level of strain, that level of struggle, that level of sacrifice is what Jesus is looking for in his followers. It's what he's calling us to. Now, some of you, just to take a pause here, might be wondering, are we on the road to talking about works-based salvation? Is that what Pastor Dave is getting at? Earning our salvation, striving to earn our salvation from God. No. Absolutely not. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is the free, hear this, is the free, unearned and undeserved invitation to follow Jesus and live a life where you're going to have to try really hard. Try really hard to surrender. Try really hard to die to self. Try really hard to yield your will and flesh to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit now available to you. Jesus says, you want salvation? Great. It's free. But it ain't easy. It's an invitation to a life of agonizomai in this world with God to advance His kingdom. And again... Just to go back, this is why Luke starts this section by telling us that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He says, Jesus is on the road of suffering and struggle and sacrifice. And if you want to follow him, in other words, if you want to follow him, you're going to be on the same road that he's on. And the same will be asked of you. Friends, here's the question. Where are you being asked to follow Jesus? Where specifically in your life are you being asked to live out your salvation and die to yourself and carry your cross and agonizomai with God for the advancement of his kingdom? Is there a place? Is there a person? Is there a venue where God is asking that of you? Friends, if so... If so, and if there's places in your life where following Jesus seem difficult and hard and require effort and striving and strain, that might actually be a wonderful clue that you're actually on the right path. You see, if your Christian life consists of none of this, if if in your following of Jesus there's no struggle or strain or sacrifice, then maybe you're not on the right path. You know, if, if, if our following of Jesus looks more like the road to the American dream than the road to Jerusalem, then maybe we're not really following Jesus after all. Maybe what we're relying on for salvation is like the Jews, a false hope, a false gospel, a path to salvation that actually leads nowhere. 
Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, free gift of inviting us onto this path of difficulty and hard work that's, by the way, packed with meaning and purpose and grace and satisfaction and hope. But not easy. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Friends, do you know what's really troubling about this passage? Does this passage trouble any of you? Does it cause you just to to flinch or pause or do a gut check or a life evaluation? It's supposed to. It should. I hope that it does. But do you know, the the longer I sit with it and the more I've really thought about it, do you know what's most troubling about this passage, really? This is not a passage about choosing Buddha over Jesus and the dangers of that. This is not a warning about choosing Muhammad over Jesus. The message here is not beware of Hinduism or naturalism or even of atheism. The warning of this passage is beware of kind of Jesus. Beware of, I sort of associate with Jesus. Be real careful and on guard against Interacting with Jesus in a surface level way, but never really knowing him, never truly following him, never committing wholeheartedly to giving your life completely over in service to him. Beware of kind of Jesus. Lord, what are you talking about? We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets? I don't know you or where you come from. Sort of rings of the same words Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 7 when he says the, when he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Fill in the blank with all of your good works. Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. You see, Jesus is telling his Jewish, his Jewish audience And Luke is telling us that the present offer of salvation is not indefinite. God in his grace is giving one final chance for salvation. And it comes through knowing Jesus. And friends, knowing Jesus is not just knowing about Jesus or knowing of Jesus or loosely associating yourself with the name of Jesus. Knowing Jesus is about experiencing Him on such a level that you have His heart. That His heart gets formed in you. It's about walking the road to Jerusalem with Him such that giving your life up for the world is who you are becoming. That's how you know Jesus. You know, he says, the one who knows me knows the will of my father. You see, for Luke, 
The image he uses time and time again to know Jesus is to walk with him, to follow in his footsteps and to do his will and model your life and value after his. Again, I'll ask you, church, I will ask you today because it's the question that Jesus asks. Where are you giving your life up for the kingdom? Do you know Jesus? Do you know his heart? Do you know his will? Do you know what he's all about? Or do you just associate with him by attending church and doing church stuff? You see, you can get to know Jesus in the church, but just being in the church will not necessarily mean that you certainly know Jesus. There's not a direct relationship there. You know, maybe this serving fair in the gym this morning, maybe it's, it, this is more than just a cheesy moment where we try to get a few more volunteers around here. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is a real important moment for you. Maybe this has something deeply to do with your life, with your soul, with the path that you're on with God, with your connection to Jesus. Maybe this serving fair is the beginning, a first step, a next step, in a way that you can sacrifice and serve and strive with Jesus to push the kingdom forward in this world as a part of his bride the body of Christ, the church. Maybe what's happening in the gym today is the most important part of your day, your week, your year. And friends, we must understand that God takes this so seriously, that the heart of God on this is so very heavy. We must grasp the urgency and the heartbreak that he is expressing in this passage. If you go down to verse 27... Jesus says, away from me, all you evildoers. Sometimes we read that and we think Jesus is saying this with an angry tone or with disdain on his, on his lips. But actually he says this in the midst of heartbreak. He says this with lament, with a longing for people, a longing, a deep, painful longing for people to come to him and be saved. Away from me, all you evildoers, is actually Jesus quoting Psalm chapter 6. And this psalm is simply a lament. It's the lament of the suffering individual who is longing for people to join him in the healing and restoration and overcoming of sin in this world. But worn out from groaning, he waves aside all those who have stood by him for so long without ever offering mercy or help or hope. Away from me, all you who do evil, he cries. Friends, in our passage today, Jesus is telling us that he too is lamenting. He's deeply sorrowful for the fact that he holds the door open and he is longing for people to enter in and join him on this journey and join him in this life of advancing the kingdom, but they will not come through. And we're being told that it breaks God's heart. He says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are not thrown out. Again, he's speaking to Israel. He's saying, you've had so many opportunities, so many chances to join God in his mission, to be God's people, to truly be his children. And this is your last and final chance in me. But he says the same thing to us as the church. I'm your chance as well. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes we think of those images and we think about like torture. Like God has this plan to cast these bad people who won't join him down into some eternal torture chamber, right? 
But in this passage, what, what Luke is communicating, um, when he says weeping and gnashing of teeth, these are images of regret and anguish and missed opportunity and deep sorrow and disappointment. This is a warning for us in the most direct way. Don't miss the opportunity to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to lay down your life for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom that he's come to bring, to join him on the kingdom advancing journey of suffering and difficulty and sacrifice that will lead to peace and hope and joy and redemption for the world. Do not miss this opportunity. In his wonderful book, The The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says this. I think it ties into what Jesus says. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Friends, Jesus is standing at the door, holding it open, asking, begging, pleading, and dying for you to lay down your life and follow Him. He's always wanted followers. Not just declarers. And then listen to this, listen to this. This is how beautiful the scriptures are. Verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Do you see what's so amazing about this passage and about the gospel? This is not an exclusive God forming an exclusive club. This is an inclusive God opening his arms to any and all who will receive him. North, south, east, west. This is imagery for all the peoples of the world. Friends, in other words, this Jesus-redeemed life, this Jesus life of, a life of transformation and metanoia and hope and peace and redemption is available to any and all who are willing to live it. God is not the limiting factor here. I was talking with Pastor Matt this week and we were processing this passage and he, he said these two sentences that I thought were brilliant and I asked him if I could use them and he said yes. He said... While entry into the kingdom is narrow, it's self-limiting narrowness, not God-limiting narrowness. Meaning this, it's only as narrow as our own hearts. It's only as narrow as our own hearts. The only thing holding you back, limiting you from the life that God wants to offer you and the eternal salvation that he longs to give you is the narrowness of your own heart. See, do you understand the scandalous grace of the kingdom? The ultimate answer of Jesus, the ultimate message of the gospel, when this man says, will only a few be saved? Jesus says, hey, not will only a few be saved, but will you be saved? And understand this, understand how radically inclusive and available the kingdom is to you and everyone else. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, salvation is offered to you. The kingdom of God is at hand. Please be a part of it. And then this wonderfully challenging, inviting final verse. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Technically in the Greek it it reads, Indeed, there are those who are last ones who will be first, and first ones who will be last. You see, friends... The world says, go be a first one. Go be first. 
Go do everything for yourself. Go build your own kingdom. Go build your own reputation. Go build your own status. Go increase what people think about you and all that you have. Go be a first one. And Jesus says, that road, that path leads to nothing. It leads to emptiness. It leads to destruction. But, but if you're willing to follow me and lay down your life and sacrifice the riches of this world like we sing about, then if you're willing to be a last one, then when it comes to the kingdom, you will be first. Because salvation is not found in being first in the way the world defines it. Privileged in the way the world defines privilege. Having status and pleasure and opportunity in the way the world defines status and pleasure and opportunity. I was talking with a friend of mine this week um, about a friend of his who has two daughters. And he told me this story of this dad who raised his oldest daughter in a fairly nice neighborhood around fairly nice people with not a lot of struggle. But then, after his oldest daughter had moved away, he felt this calling to move to a more difficult neighborhood a neighborhood in the city, a neighborhood where there was problems and struggle. And he felt this call to go and be the light of Christ in the hands and feet of Jesus in this neighborhood. And he got all this resistance from people who kept telling him, you're robbing your younger daughter of what you offered your older daughter. And he said, it didn't take me long to figure out that I had in fact actually robbed my older daughter of what I was offering my younger daughter. The wonderful reversal of the kingdom of God. The enormous switcheroo, right? And friends, this does not mean that all of us have to sell our homes and move to poor or bad neighborhoods. No, because that's not... We don't all get the same call from God. We're not all called to live out our salvation and our walk with Jesus in the same way. Praise the Lord. That's true. But the question is, where have you been called to live out your salvation? Where have you been called to agonizomai with Jesus? Where has God called you to lay down your life and live as a last one in this world for the advancement of God's kingdom? Where? Have you received that call from God? Are you living into it? Are you walking that road with Jesus towards Jerusalem? Are you truly following Him? It's a sobering question. It's a challenging question. It's meant to be. And I want to leave us this morning as we move into a time of communion with three challenges. And I'm hoping that at least one of these will strike you. Here's the first one. Maybe you're here today and you're in the middle of following Jesus. And you've jumped on that road with him. And you are in the middle of of struggling and striving and sacrificing for the kingdom of God and the place that you believe he's called you to be and doing what he belie- you believe he's called you to do. And the truth of the matter is this. It's harder than you thought. It's exhausting and it's difficult. And you are maybe on that fourth and final lap and you're not sure you're going to make it all the way to the finish line. I want to encourage you this morning. Take a moment, come to the table and let this meal that we're about to eat remind you of where your power where your strength and where your inspiration comes from. Remember that you serve a God that is with you. And before you ever decided to get on the road of of suffering and struggle and sacrifice, your God sent his one and only son to agonizomai for you. Let the Lord refill your tanks, recharge your batteries, remind you that he is with you on this journey. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you're here today... And you have decided to follow Jesus. 
You've made that declaration. You've said, yes, I want to give my life to you, Lord. But the truth of the matter is this. It's ended there. And you don't know where you're called to walk on that road with him. You don't have a clear sense of of direction of where he's leading you to struggle and sacrifice and lay down your life and carry your cross for the kingdom to move forward in this world. Maybe you're just sort of sitting here and you're stuck. This morning I invite you, as you come to the table, you just pray. Lord, show me. Show me how to follow you in sacrifice. Show me where to follow you in struggle. Show me the place you're calling me to go that's so difficult that I will actually need you on the way because there's no way I could pull it off myself. And then finally, maybe this morning you're here and you've, you've never actually decided to make Jesus Lord and Savior. Let me just tell you what Jesus says here. The time is not indefinite. That opportunity will not always be there. And Jesus asks and begs and pleads and invites for you to come to him, to know him, and to join him on the journey he has planned for you. It will be wonderful. It will be beautiful. It will be peaceful and difficult and challenging and agonizing and victorious and redemptive. But it is the best life you can ever live. Don't spend one more day on your own path. Know Jesus. Accept Christ. Come to this table and say, Lord, your body, your blood, your death and resurrection paid the price for my sin and now I give my entire life to you. I make you Lord. I make you Savior and I will walk with you and I will follow you wherever you lead. Do you need to make that decision today? If you do, Say those things to God. Just say it right to him during this time that we're going to give you. I hope that one of those challenges, I hope that you will take me up on one of those challenges this morning. I'm going to pray and then take a few minutes, do some business with God. And when you're ready, come to the tables and you can take the elements back to your seats and receive them on your own. Um, But we're going to move into a time of the Lord's Supper together. So pray with me. Father, I I want to pray specifically for people in this room who are on a difficult path and they're needing you to remind them that you're with them. Needing you to remind them of the power that they have in you, that they're not by themselves. And I pray also, God, for those who, who need direction and then for those, God, who need to just make that decision to just turn their will over to you and say, I don't want to be in control of my life anymore. I want you to be in control. Holy Spirit, move and nudge and push and pull and do not let anyone walk out of here today, God, without taking a step forward in their relationship with you, whatever that step may be. We love you, we thank you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.